Bienvenidos and welcome to La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza, produced by Nina Serrano, Julieta Kuznir, Vanessa Bohm, and Vilma V. Tonight's program begins with Noticias, a summary of international and local news from the Americas. We'll also focus on conversations about Cuba, including an interview with Valerie Landau about her experience at the reopening of the Cuban Embassy in Washington, D.C. last week, as well as upcoming opportunities to travel to Cuba on educational tours. We'll also speak with Alicia Arpo, formerly of the International Committee to Free the Cuban Five, who'll talk about the evolution of the group's work since the return of the Cuban political prisoners from the United States to Cuba and their current work to support Cuban sovereignty and independence. We'll also bring you an interview about the upcoming dance party of local music groups Carne Cruda and Hernandez's Hideaway. And we'll hear their original music. So tune in and enjoy. This is Vilma V with Noticias Sin Fronteras, news headlines without borders from America Latina for the week ending July 26. Colombia. Last week, Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos ordered the Colombian military to suspend airstrikes against camps belonging to FARC rebels. Santos' announcement came just days after the FARC began their unilateral ceasefire on July 20th. The Colombian president said that his order only applied to camps outside urban areas which did not pose a threat to the local population. Peace talks have been taking place between the military and the FARC in Havana since 2012. Santos stated that, quote, from now on, this type of bombing will only be done by explicit order of the president. Mexico. Sixty mass graves have been uncovered in the southern Mexican state of Guerrero, as a result of the search for the 43 missing male students from Ayotzinapa who have been missing since last September. The Mexican Attorney General stated that the office had located the remains of over 100 bodies, but thus far, none of the remains have been linked to any of the missing students. The majority of the bodies found have been male, but the remains of some 20 women have also been found. The information about the mass graves was released after the Associated Press requested the information through the Freedom of Information Act. Also, a Mexican judge ordered three prison guards to be taken into custody while the investigation into the escape of drug lord Joaquin El Chapo Guzman continues. Guzman escaped for the second time from a high-security prison on July 11th. The last time he escaped, he managed to elude the Mexican authorities for over a decade. This time, Guzman escaped from an underground tunnel from his cell to a building outside the prison complex. Guzman's personal fortune is estimated at $1 billion. Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto called his escape a, quote, affront to the state. Brazil. Although Brazil has a population that is a third smaller than the U.S., it has almost five times as many killed by police than the U.S. This past month has been particularly deadly in Brazil, with a rash of execution-style killings that left 35 people dead in just a three-day period. Brazilian newspapers reported that the bullets used in many of the killings were of the same caliber as those used by the Brazilian police. The Attorney General of the state of Amazonas, Fabio Montiero, said the evidence pointed to the existence of a death squad. Also in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, Last Friday, more than 1,000 taxi drivers blocked roads for hours during the morning commute in a protest against the online ride-sharing company Uber. Brazilian lawmakers in Sao Paulo, Brazil's biggest city and in the capital of Brasilia, have already voted to ban Uber after protests by local taxi drivers in those cities. The taxi drivers assert that Uber drivers are not properly regulated and are unfairly competing in the marketplace. Alexander Campos, a taxi driver, said, quote, We want to combat the illegal drivers. We are the official ones. We have responsibility. We are professionals who have families. Chile. Important developments toward long-sought justice in Chile this past week. A Chilean judge charged seven former members of the Chilean military with murder and attempted murder for an infamous attack in 1986 that saw two pro-democracy activists doused with petrol and set on fire. 
Rodrigo Rojas, a photographer, and Carmen Quintana, who was just 18 at the time and a university student, were both detained and attacked by the military during the pro-democracy demonstrations. For decades, the Chilean military denied any involvement in the vicious attack, going so far as to accuse the two of having set themselves on fire. Both activists were left for dead by the side of a road. Somehow, Quintana survived the brutal assault, but Rojas died four days after the incident. His mother stated, Everyone here is responsible because when silence has been kept for 29 years, everyone shares the responsibility. Also, the Chilean courts charged 10 former military members for the death and torture of Victor Jara back in 1973. At the time of his murder, Jara was a folk singer, theater director, and a political activist. Jara was taken prisoner during the U.S.-backed military coup by General Agosto Pinochet back in 1973. Jara's wrists and hands were broken and he was shot over 40 times. He is perhaps the most well-known of Pinochet's victims, but thousands of others were also killed and or disappeared. Jara's widow, Joan Turner, called the charges a message of hope, but also noted that much more needed to be done. She said, quote, If Victor's case serves as an example, we're pushing forward in demanding justice for Victor with the hope that justice will follow for everyone. Four of those charged immediately turned themselves in, with other arrests expected in the coming weeks. This has been a listing of some of the latest news headlines from America Latina. I'm Vilma V for Noticias Sin Fronteras and La Raza Chronicles. If you have a news item that you would like to share or have us cover, email us at larazachronicles at kpfa.org. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. Today we have in studio with us Valerie Landau. Valerie has just returned from a very important occasion in D.C. Valerie was part of the opening of the Cuban Embassy in Washington, D.C. Valerie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Valerie, you have spent a lot of time in Cuba, visiting Cuba. Your family has been very committed to solidarity with the Cuban people. I know that the opening of the Cuban embassy was a really, really, really special day. Why don't you tell us about it for all of us who couldn't be there? The reopening of the Cuban embassy in Washington, D.C., last Monday, July 20th, was a truly historic moment. And I think what it marked was one more nail in the coffin of the Cold War and a real step forward towards dialogue and diplomacy and hopefully normalizations between one of our closest neighbors, Cuba. There was such a feeling of joy in the room between there were many diplomats there, ambassadors from many, many countries, as well as activists and scholars and business people. So it was a real mixed group of people all celebrating the steps towards diplomacy and normalization. And I think that um, we're going to see a whole new ways we can exchange and have relations with people from Cuba. So this is a long time coming, as we know. Why don't you tell us about any of the speeches you heard or people you connected with that have been working on trying to build this bridge between these two neighbors for so long? Well, I think that uh, Medea Benjamin from Code Pink was there, and many of the Code Pink followers were outside with a very simple message, which was, Salsa si, embargo no. So that was uh, one message that was there. Also, Danny Glover was there, who's been working tirelessly, spent um, many, many trips both to Cuba and to the federal prison to free the Cuban Five. And he was there, and his message was clear that we need to normalize relations with Cuba and start opening up this exchange so we can learn from their many successes and they can learn from many of our successes. James Early, who was there, was... uh, recently retired from the Smithsonian, 
and has done a lot of work around culture in Cuba and bringing that to the Smithsonian. Also, many of the the former diplomats were there, and the Cuban diplomats were saying that although they were very happy to see this reopening of the embassy and the reopening of diplomatic relations, there was a serious fear that the words of Jose Marti kept coming up and up again around that this time relations had to be of mutual respect between sovereign nations and not a dialogue between imperialists and colonies. And so that was one of the themes that was emerging, as well as sort of this hope for a new dawn and a new day in which Cubans and Americans can have mutual respect and mutual dialogue. Valerie Landau, so you have been working with Cubans for quite a while, and you have also lived in Cuba and and have traveled back and forth from the United States to Cuba often. Why don't we just take a step back? Why don't you tell us about a very important day, also for all the work your father, Saul Landau, did throughout his lifetime for Cuba? Yes, my father had worked many, many years, starting in the 1960, I believe, was his first trip to Cuba and uh as well as my first trip to Cuba. Um, And he dedicated many films and uh, many, many trips and delegations to Cuba to try and normalize relations and to ease hostilities between the two governments. His last film that he completed was Will the Real Terrorist Please Stand Up, which paints a comprehensive narrative about Cuba-U.S. relations for the last 50 years, as well as framing the very complex story of the Cuban Five who were recently released in a prisoner exchange in this warming of diplomatic relations. At the event, many, many people were so glad to see me, and it was very heartfelt for me, I think, because when people saw me there, they felt that my father's presence was being acknowledged, and it was quite a profound experience. For instance, actor Danny Glover, when he saw me, he stood up and hugged me and cried and said, I so wish your dad could be here. And I think that that was iterated by many other people, including Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman and former Cuban ambassador Sanchez Parodi, as well as Ricardo Alarcón and and many other Cuban diplomats who were there and, and U.S. activists. So I was very honored to carry on the family tradition, as well as my brothers and sisters, who all do what they can to keep his memory alive. That's the voice of Valerie Landau. We're talking about her work in Cuba, as well as her father, Saul Landau's continuous work to address the embargo, to address the injustice of the imprisonment of the Cuban Five, and his work to document and tell a more complete story about what life really is like in Cuba. And Valerie, you really have continued on that tradition, especially with this work you've been doing, leading these groups to Cuba and really creating opportunity for people to build relationships with actual Cubans, not just perhaps walk around and take pictures at the local tourist sites. So why don't you tell us about these groups that you've led? Because you recently brought a group of folks that focus around technology, and they had a very interesting time and experience meeting with Cubans. Yes, we led a group of educational technologists, and I think one of the most um, profound meetings that we had was with the director of the United Nations Program Development Office in Cuba. And her comment was, the most profound accomplishment of the Cuban Revolution was eliminating poverty. And everyone gasped. Because as you look around Cuba, you see evidence of poor conditions pretty much everywhere you go. Potholes in the road, telephones that don't work, crumbling buildings, um, lack of material resources. But what you also see, but it's not always as evident to the eye, is that there's a wealth of human capital and a well-being among the population in terms of health. Cubans now outlive Americans by a few months in terms of prevention so that the Cubans who are alive are living healthier lives. Recently, Cuba was just proclaimed by the World Health Organization of having eradicated um, the transference of AIDS from mother to child. They've also come very close to eradicating amputation from diabetes. 
um, and a whole host of other things. So they've taken this issue of preventative care very seriously. And human health is sort of the core of the cultural perspective. So what you see at first is, wow, this looks so poor. But what's happened is they've eradicated the actual poverty. So children are not dying of starvation. Every child receives a very high quality education, and that's preschool through graduate school. All Cubans are entitled to housing, maybe substandard housing, but everyone has a roof. And there's a free access to mental health as well. So these are things that are real accomplishments, and the revolution has a long ways to go. I think in issues around jurisprudence, we can see that the Cuban government has a huge area to improve, and the issue of prison and prison reform is something that Cubans struggle with as well as Americans. So those are some of the important things people can actually see if they are able to meet with Cubans and not just walk around and look at the buildings. Yeah, I think one of the unique things that I was able to offer, as well as my colleague, Professor Nelson Valdez, who is the premier Cuban scholar, was that we were able to provide tours that we really customize for the people who are going so that you can have very high-level and deep conversations with your Cuban peers. Um, And so our tours are not just about on the bus, off the bus, let's party, let's smoke cigars and drive in old cars, although we can totally arrange for those things too. But it's really to take a much more serious look at Cuba and to really explore possibilities for further collaboration between the two peoples, whether that's in commerce, import-export, in sustainable development, in education, in technology. There's a lot of opportunities, and I think a lot of Americans are curious about those things, and we can really create a tour where you're having a very rich experience. I'm encouraging people to approach me with their particular interest in Cuba. So if someone is interested in a particular high-level, in-depth tour on a particular subject, say, exporting California rice to Cuba, or importing Cuban art, or exploring possibilities of technology exchanges with Cuba. I'm interested in setting up these kinds of exchanges where I can call experts in that field in Cuba, and we can have serious conversation and exchange in a small group setting. So I'm happy if people want to contact me to help them set up these kinds of customized tours. Valerie, so you have had a long-term relationship with Gua. Um, Why don't you take a step back and tell us a little bit about your family's relationship and your own relationship with the island? Yes, well, my father was a journalist who covered Cuba since 1960. And he made many documentary films, including a film in 1968 where he and my mother, Nina Serrano of Cronicas de la Raza, spent two weeks touring the island of Cuba in a jeep with Fidel. That movie is called Fidel, and it's available on Netflix. And during that time, we spent about five months in Cuba, and I attended elementary school in Havana. And then I went to Cuba pretty much every year after that for several years. And in 1974, 1975, I spent a year in a Cuban boarding school that was half agricultural labor and half academic study. Um, And since then, I worked on many film crews as a guide, field producer, interpreter in Cuba, including with... um, the CBS's television show, 60 Minutes, and German television and many others, and then more recently leading high-level delegations where Americans get to meet with Cuban officials, artists, intellectuals, and um, everyday working people. So I've had a long history living and working in Cuba. Valerie Landau, so this is a momentous time. This is an incredible turning point in U.S.-Cuba relations. So when you were at the opening of the embassy, when you talked to your colleagues that have been working to improve relations between the U.S. and Cuba for decades now, what do these changes mean and what do you hope for the future? Well, right now, most of the changes are very symbolic rather than substantive. 
we still have a trade embargo against Cuba. But I think that it means that there's a willingness on the part of the United States to enter into dialogue and to overcome some of the obstacles. And there's great opportunity for both Cubans and Americans to begin exchange and dialogue in ways that were not possible before. In September, I'm going to be leading a very small delegation of Americans to attend the mass given by the Pope. Um, before he comes to the United States, the Pope is stopping off in Cuba, and he's going to give mass in Havana as well as a series of other cities. And so I'm taking a, a small delegation, and we'll be attending the Pope's mass as well as traveling to the city of Cienfuegos to see the different religious practices there, as well as going to the home of Cuban singer Benny More, a very small town. Benny More's father was part of what they call the Congo Temple, and they have some very distinct and interesting religious practices that we'll be able to sit down and have a meal with members of the Congo Temple in this small village. So I think it's going to be an exciting tour. We're also going to visit the Bay of Pigs and talk with people there who remember that invasion and see, uh, let sort of let the process of healing between the two peoples begin in earnest. Because one of the things that's interesting about going to Cuba is that although there's been very, very bad relations between the two governments, there's always been a great love between the two peoples. And Valerie, if we have people listening that are really excited about this opportunity to connect with people on the ground in Cuba and see for themselves, not see just what's on reported on Fox News or CNN or the little they read in their U.S. history book when they're in school. How can people connect to you and these tours? Well, I just put up a website called landouttours.com, and you can find me there. Great. And so you'll be leading this tour in September to align with the Pope's visit. Do you have any other tours on the horizon? Oh, yes, I have two that I'm so excited about. One is we're putting together a trip for the Jazz Festival. It's going to be a very small group. We have 15 rooms reserved. That should be amazing because we'll be able to have not only attend the jazz festival, but also have um, lectures, demos, and workshops by leading Cuban artists. And the tour that I'm most excited about is, is actually closest to my heart is going to be in January, where we are working with Pedro Urra, who was the founder of Infomed, which he founded in 1991, an intranet connecting health centers in Cuba to disseminate health information. And he is now working digitizing the Cuban library system and trying to make that accessible to all the people in Cuba. And so we are going to have a maker exchange, and we're looking for American makers who want to spend three days making applications, hardware and software, with Cuban makers. So we'll be have artists, inventors, engineers, designers, all working on ways to make this um, digital collection come alive virtually. And I think that's going to be very exciting. We'll spend a few days getting an understanding of what is Cuba, and then three days making, and then three days sort of processing what we see by visiting different towns and different locations. So I'm hoping people will sign up for that. I think it's going to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And Valerie, there are some people listening that are wondering, wait, does this mean we can now just go to Cuba? Can you tell us a little bit about how travel restrictions have changed in the last six months in terms of travel to Cuba and how people can actually participate in a tour? Yeah, well, it's still illegal to go to Cuba as a tourist. You must go with a very specific agenda. And that agenda can be either academic or religious or humanitarian or going to have a people-to-people -people cultural exchange. But you have to have a very full itinerary and just plain tourism is still not allowed by the U.S. government. But people can take part in these educational, informative, and transformative tours. So thank you, Valerie. Again, can you remind people of your website? The website is called Landau Tours. That is the voice of Valerie Landau. We got to chat with her about this important opening of the Cuban embassy in D.C. She was able to attend. We've also gotten to hear more about her continuous work with the island and her upcoming tours. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros.
This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. My guest today is Alicia Harapo. Bienvenido, Alicia. Muchas gracias, Nina. It's such a pleasure to have you, especially since we get to talk about such a glorious event as the freedom of the Cuban Five, which the group that you founded and headed up, the International Committee for... For the Freedom of the Cuban Five. ...actually helped free the Cuban Five. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I mean, I will say that we were part of an international campaign that ended up in a victorious day, uh, December 17, 2014. For us, was a big surprise, as it was for many people. We knew that it was going to happen, but we didn't know when. So we were surprised. But even that you knew that it was going to happen, that too is a big surprise because for so long it seemed so overwhelming with prison sentences that included something like two lifetimes. Exactly. So the chances that Gerardo Hernandez had two life sentences plus 15 years got out of prison, it was really, really a difficult case. But, you know, we knew always that was a political case, so we really had have the hope that if the time come, you know, if it's pressure from all over the world, which was what really happened, and the willingness of the administration to do the right thing, it was a combination. And the biggest surprise was that beside the three of them that were still here being released, also that day, President Obama and President Raul Castro started a new era of U.S.-Cuban relations. Yes, and that certainly made the big difference. So first, the two who had to serve their complete sentences were sent back to Cuba upon their release. But then there was freeing the others. And when you first got the news that there was a possibility, did that change the rhythm or the tempo or the way the work went? Well, you know, we felt that uh, in the last three years, we, our group, our committee, and along with many others who came from other countries, actually parliamentarians who came to Washington, D.C. to help with the case, we felt the, the energy that something was coming up, you know, and it was more knowing about the case. The case was silenced for such a long time, and all of a the sudden, there we are in Washington, and even elected officials wants to talk about the Cuban Five, which was a new thing for us. It was such a taboo for a long time. Nobody wants to touch the case. So we felt that something was going on, and we knew also that it was a Panama summit coming up where presidents from all over Latin America will be attending. And we know that it was an embarrassing situation for President Obama because the U.S. continued with this policy towards Cuba, which was not what Latin America wanted to see in the continent. Everybody have relations with Cuba. I think the time was right for that to happen. What we knew is that it was going to happen from one day to another, and we will find out that way that we actually did find out that they were already in Cuba, you know, when we got the news. They were already landed in Cuba. Amazing, yeah. wonderful. So many of our listeners are activists, and they're parts of groups that are trying to do things, and they they too want to succeed with all their hearts. And so what were some of the campaigns that you conducted that you feel were successful and that helped? Well, I think that the first thing that I will say is like to be part of an international campaign was an important way of working. First of all, the Cuban Five were, as a difference with many other cases of political prisoners, they had the support of the entire country, the Cuban People, the government of Cuba, they were fighting for their release. And then there were their families, the mothers, the sisters, the son, the, the daughters. Everybody was fighting together. And then there were communities all over the world. But we understood that here in the United States, we have an important role to play because the five were in prison in the United States. And it was because the U.S. policy towards Cuba that had them in prison. So what we did is we started reaching out to people that were not necessarily convinced that they should go back to Cuba. Because we started reaching out to professors, to intellectuals, to writers, to religious people. We did something that most of us in the progressive movement don't like to do, and I will tell you that I still don't like to do, which is doing advocacy work, which is not really lobby because we don't have resources to do lobby the way lobby works, but, but advocacy work very important because we were visiting offices in Congress where we were talking with the staff members of Congress people that they had no idea what was going on. They didn't know who the Cuban five were. And we were doing this three years in a row. Uh, the first year was not 
as big. Second year bigger. The third year was really a big gathering of international guests. And we were able to bring parliamentarians from Latin America and from Europe who actually were able to set up meetings with elected officials because they were equal, you know. So they received us and they talk about the importance of this case, why it was important for Latin America or Europe to free the Cuban Five. And so that's what we were doing different, I will say. We called rallies. We organized rallies in front of the White House. We were inside the government and outside the government, you know, talking to elected officials and also protesting uh, the White House because we keep saying Obama can do it if he if he has the will to do it. We have a campaign, big uh, sign that says Obama give me five, which was a way to, to play with wars. But that became our campaign, Obama give me five. The demonstrations were getting bigger and bigger. And so the last year, it was big enough that we could actually march from the White House to the Justice Department. And I think that's what we were doing. We were able to combine all these people who were already a voice who wanted change in the administration and people that were, they used to be, in the administration or in previous administration who understood that this was a case of justice and join us in the struggle. And I think for them to speak was much more heard than if we as activists speak. So we were able to use their voices to bring the case in Washington because we felt like that's what the decision came to put them in prison. And we felt that the decision to free them would be also in Washington. And that proved to be correct. Exactly. So you're talking about the last three years, but when did that committee come together, the International National Committee to Free the Cuban Five. I started working from the beginning, 2001, but the International Committee formed in 2006. And since then, we were like doing all sorts of activities. But in the last three years, after Rene Gonzalez, one of the Cuban Five, was free, we organized a tour with La Colmenita, a children's theater from Cuba. And in that occasion, when they returned to Cuba, we were in Miami with them, and Rene was already free in Miami, and we were able to meet him. And he was still there because he was under supervised probation. He couldn't return. We had a meeting with him and all the children from La Comunidad. It was wonderful. But at one point, we were able to talk to him. And he said to me, listen, there, there are colloquiums in Olguin every year, which are wonderful. People come from all over the world to Cuba to, to have conversations about the Cuban fight. But you have to bring that to Washington. Washington is very important. And I remember I say, we can't do that. I don't think we have the capability or capacity. He said, of course you do. You have to do it. You know, so he, he inspired us to do that. It was his idea. So since then, we are coming to Washington not only once a year, twice a year, because we used to go for the what we call the five days for the Cuban Five in Washington, D.C., and we will come back in September for the anniversary of the arrest, continue to do in lobby. And we were planning the one this year already. You know, we already have a permit for a demonstration in September. And what happened is in December, they were back home. We, that's what we fought for. So we were very excited. I was able to go to Cuba right after they returned because they invited us to go and spend some time with Gerardo Hernandez, the one that had two life sentences, who became very close friend of me and my partner because we had visited him for 12 years in Victorville, California. Lompoc first and then Victorville. So we just became part of the family. What a tremendous tremendous 12 years, and what a great victory. So now the Cuban Five are freed, and here is the International Committee to Free the Cuban Five. So what is this new evolution yeah. that is occurring? So when we when we find out that they were home, of course, you know, that was the end of our committee because they were very free. You know, we, I never wanted to say we free them. Of course not. It wasn't us. It was the entire movement in the United States and in, in Cuba and around the world. But the reality is that we end the reason to be the National Committee for the Freedom of the Cuban Five. So we have a conversation with all the members of our committee, which are people around the country, actually, from different cities. And everybody agreed that we wanted to continue working together. And as you know, the blockade is still in place, and there's a lot of things to fight for. So we decided to stay together. And after a few months of conversation, of trying to figure it out, what would be our next step, we now are part of a bigger international committee 
that is called International Committee for Peace, Justice, and Dignity for the Peoples. And our platform is much, much bigger. You know, people know us by International Committee. But now our platform will be supporting the struggles in Latin America, in solidarity with Cuba, and against the blockade, of course, for the release of Oscar Lopez and all the political prisoners, and f- supporting the Palestinian struggle, too. So it's, it's a bigger platform, wider platform. But here in the United States, our main focus would be in the blockade of Cuba. So actually, we are right now preparing a series of activities in Washington against the blockade, September 16, 17, and 18. Using that permit that you were going to use to well, free the Cuban Five? Actually, we're not going to rally, but we're going to do lobby in support of ending the blockade, in support of top uh, regime change programs in Cuba. Uh, we're going to do lobby. We're going to do a photo exhibit after the return of the five. The f- images are after the return of the five of eight different photographers, seven Cuban photographers and one U.S. photographer. And then we will do one-day conference with a number of personalities who will speak on the issue of health care, religious, the other laws are affecting right now, the blockade. And then we also are going to have, actually, Rafael Cancer Miranda, who will be with us in Washington. He was Washington. a former political prisoner from Puerto Rico. Exactly, and he's a fighter for independence of Puerto Rico and the lawyer of Oscar Lopez will be with us too. So. Another Puerto Rican political prisoner. Yeah. Oscar Lopez is a political prisoner and Rafael Cancel Miranda is fighting for the release of Oscar Lopez and the Cuban Five are for the release of Oscar Lopez and many of us in the U.S. So we're going to bring Rafael Cancel. He already accepted our invitation. And then we're going to have the lawyer of Oscar Lopez speaking on, on the case. It's just tremendous. You didn't miss a beat. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we have to continue. We have, you know, we were coming in this like crescendo uh, activities and reaching out. So we're not going to give up at that because the, the reality is that many of us in our group, I would say most of us in our group are people who have been in solidarity with Cuba for 20, 25 years. And we're not going to stop because the reality is that we still need to continue our solidarity with Cuba until the blockade is lifted and until the U.S. stop the regime change programs, until the U.S. respect Cuban sovereignty and self-determination of the Cuban people. And so the name of the new committee is now what? In español, Comité Internacional Paz, Justicia y Dignidad a los Pueblos. And in English? In English, is International Committee for Peace, Justice, and Dignity for the Peoples. Now, in the meantime, a book had been published just pretty close to the time of their release. And now the last chapter of the book has to be changed? Well, actually, the the person that wrote that book is Stephen Kimber from Halifax, Canada. In the last two years, I've been working very close with us. And I'm proud to say that now he's part of the International Committee. He was a person who didn't know anything about the case, went to Cuba on vacation, find out about the case because he saw them billboards everywhere and start uh, doing a research. He has written seven books, so it's, it's somebody that knows how to write books. So he wrote the story of the Cuban Five. It's called What Lies Across the Water, the real story of the Cuban Five. And Gerardo Hernandez said to him one time, I hope someday your book have a final chapter, which will be the happy chapter when we return. So now he, he wrote the epilogue and he won't added to the English version because he will add it to the Spanish version that is coming out and also the, I think it's a version in French that is coming out or German, not sure what I think it's German. So what he's going to do, he's going to write a second book of the Cuban Five. But the last chapter, this happy chapter, is the epilogue of the story, how what happened when they were called to leave the prison and go back to Cuba. So it's, it's a beautiful epilogue, and it's actually online. People can read it. Going to his webpage, the blog, Stephen Kimber. Blog. So can people reach you through email and through the web? What is your website? Sure. Our website now is theinternationalcommittee.org. Theinternationalcommittee.org. And they can write to us info 
de internationalcommunity.org. Well, this has been very exciting, and it's so great that we have so much upbeat news to discuss, and we didn't even tell the listeners or remind them of the real miracle of the little baby. Would you tell oh, about that? Oh, sure. Well, I think that that was the biggest surprise of all. When Gerardo Hernandez returned to Cuba on December 17, he found his wife pregnant. Of course, he knew. Pregnant, very pregnant. But the baby was born on January 6. So he returned on, this, on December 17. But, of course, with his baby, pregnant oh, with yeah, his yeah, baby. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was his baby. Actually, there is a lot of articles written about Gemma, is her name, is a miracle baby, because the chances that this could happen was very, very, very almost no chance. But in an opportunity not too long ago, Senator Leahy and his wife were in Cuba, and Adriana Perez, the wife of Gerardo, asked, to a meeting with them, and she met with them and explained to them that she really wanted to have children, that th her time was passing, that she didn't know when her husband was going to come back. And so she really touched their heart. And the wife of Senator Leigh, he said to Adriana, I know what you mean about having children. I have children of my own. I have grandchildren, and I will, we will do our best to help you. So he actually was the one that talked to the Justice Department and they arranged for for the semen of Gerardo to be bring it up to Panama where she was there waiting. You know, she had already, already frozen some egg a few years ago, always hoping that this could happen. And so she got pregnant. She got pregnant. And so the baby is absolutely Gerardo. And not only that, but if you see the baby, she looks exactly like him. If it was any doubt that Gemma, you know, wasn't his. So they're very excited. Everybody, you know, it's like nobody knew they were keep that information secret because if now we realize that, that because there were some negotiations going on behind the scene, that could be a problem. So they kept it secret. Nobody was seeing her in the last months. And so she was very pregnant when he came. And the photos are super beautiful, like enjoying the moment when she was ready to, to give birth to the baby. So actually, we were we were able to meet Emma when she was one day old because oh. we were there. I mean, she is such a beautiful girl. That was one of the most thrilling parts. There was a miracle. Yeah. And then on top of the political miracle, there was a uh, cosmic miracle. Yeah. And, you know, I think that people should, I mean, I don't know, we feel very energized. I know that most of the time we we have to fight and fight and we don't win. But I feel that this was a victory for all of us, you know, not just the people that were fighting for the freedom of the five, people that are fighting for a long time for, for political prisoners, just to have five of them free three because the other one complete their sentences. It was some, something that, you know, we need to celebrate and we need to keep fighting because, you know, it shows us that it's possible. It is possible. And so we have to keep fighting. Exactly. <laughs> and working. And you have done a magnificent job. I really want to congratulate you, Alicia. This is the first opportunity I've had to see you and talk to you since all of these remarkable events. And Thank you. It was a pleasure seeing how your leadership went and that it has resulted in something so marvelous. So thank you very much. And we look forward to your coming back and telling us about what's happening at theinternationalcommittee.org. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nina. Un placer.
This is Cronicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles, and we have some musicians in the house. We're really hey. lucky to have... Hey! Hi. <laughs> um, so we're lucky to have Hernandez Hideaway that are coming out with this brand new CD, which is why we have them here. And then we also have Camilo Lenda representing the wonderful Carne Cruda. So thank you all for being here. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So the voices you're about to hear from, we have with us Claire Phillips, who plays a saxophone and flute and is part of Hernandez Hideaway. We also have Nauna Kazawa, who plays violin and mandolin. So that's exciting. Ooh, I wish we could have had some mandolin up in the studio, but next time, next time. And then we also have Camilo, who is representing Carne Cruda. So we are here because around the corner is an exciting day. You you all are releasing your debut album. Hernandez Hideaway is coming out with this CD that I have in my very hands and it's an exciting moment. So we're going to play a track off this latest CD, but before we do, why don't we hear from Hernandez Hideaway? Why don't you two tell us a little bit about some of the many different influences and styles that you all take on in this debut CD? Sure. Well, this is a huge moment for us because We've been playing this fantastic music, klezmer music, which is Eastern European dance music for about five years now together as a band. And we're so excited to release this album. It's music that really gets in your soul and makes you want to shake and move. So that's why we love it so much. It has a rich history and we kind of put a contemporary twist on it to make it our own with some original lyrics and some borrowed lyrics and some, some arrangements that are a little more interesting. So yeah, we're we're excited to be releasing this on August 1st at our CD release party. Hey, so you're going to have a party so people are going to be able to dance. So tell us about the band. Who what other instruments are people going to hear and what kind of mixes are you do you all do? Of course, uh, as you already mentioned, Claire plays saxophone and flute and I play uh, violin and mandolin. And Sam Hernandez, he plays trombone and Tim Phillips on accordion, Dan Harrison on bass and uh, we have uh, Lucy DeFort on vocals. So that kind of gives people a sense of some of the instruments that will be on stage that will get people moving. So Camilo, tell us about Carne Cruda. Carne Cruda is Oakland's premier salsa core post-Latin band. We've been around since the year 2000 and we may be best known for our anthem, Oakland's Tight, which we could play a little bit of. I know that you all do all kinds of things and also are very much into creating a dance vibe and party atmosphere at your shows. So it seems like that's something you both, Hernandez Hideaway and Carne Cruda, share. So we're going to play a little bit of Oakland's Tight. But before we do, Camilo, I know you all span a range of styles. Tell us about some of the styles and some of the types of songs you all may play at this CD release party. Yeah, we play everything from surf cumbia to calypso rock to salsa funk and everything in between. And uh, I call it post-Latin because we have heavy um, Latin music influence, but then we twist it up so much that it doesn't fall into any of the traditional Latin music categories. I've been dancing to Carne Cruda for a long time. And every time I hear them, it's such a treat. I always get down on the dance floor. I can't help myself. And that's actually why we're a good fit, our two bands, plus in a third band, the Bodice Rippers, who are a fantastic uh, local band as well. We all love to make the crowd dance. And so that's why this party is called Old World Dance Party, because it's really going to get everybody in the mood and draw on traditions while making a new statement of excitement. So let's hear about the song that Hernandez Hideaway has chosen to feature. We're going to hear some of your music to give people a taste. So what are people going to hear? Yeah, so this is a song we call Kala Hasselhoff. Originally, the uh, melody is called Kala Mazeltoff. It's, a, it's kind of a funny take with some funny lyrics about David Hasselhoff in there that we are borrowing from the Glitzy Bag Hags, some friends in the UK. So it's a lot of fun. It's a traditional song. If anyone's ever been to a Jewish wedding, they've heard this song and danced because it's, it's a good one. And people like to laugh at it as well. It's fun. We're going to hear that track. And that track is off Hernandez Hideaway's debut release, which is called Klezmerotica Sweethearts. Thank you. 
just heard a track off of Hernandez Hideaway's latest. They're debuting the CD and folks are, can come out. So tell us some details. So what is this party? Where is it? Um, we're having it at Legionnaire uh, Saloon in Oakland on August 1st, uh, Saturday, August 1st. Yeah, it's just going to be a lot of fun. Obviously, uh, we have uh, influences from all around the world. It's a show for ev anybody, everybody. We're going to have a lot of fun. Um, it's going to be a lot of dancing. It's $10. That's all? Yeah, that's yeah, all. That's For three bands, $10. I think that's a pretty good deal. And yeah, like, like we said, three bands, Hernandez Hideaway, Carne Cruda, and the Bodice Rippers, 9 p.m., doors open. And it's at the Legionnaire in downtown Oakland. It's with Sarah Sexton's Oaktown Oak Indie Oak Mayhem. <laughs> So if there are people listening and they really want to go to the show, but they also really want to stay up on the music of Hernandez Hideaway, how do they do that? How do they get their hands on this CD? Definitely if you go to our website, hernandez-hideaway.com, it's all there. And Camilo has actually produced our album for us. He's done a fantastic job also mixing it. Camilo, where is it? It's everywhere. It's on iTunes. It's on Bandcamp. It's on Spotify. It's everywhere that you would want to find music, Google Play, et cetera, et cetera, and on and on. It's about 100 different places on the Internet that you could find it. Best way to get it is come to the show. Yeah, yeah you don't want to miss out on the yeah. album artwork, which is fantastic artwork by local artist H.J. Muij. Okay, and how can people stay up on Carne Cruda? Well, you can always go to carnecruda.com also, and you can get our music there. And, of course, we're also all on Facebook and all of that other stuff, Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. So just look us up. You can find us. Say hi if you see us walking down the street. Thank you so much for having us. And we hope to see everybody on August 1st at the Legionnaire Saloon for the CD release of Klezmerotica Sweethearts by Hernandez Hideaway with the fantastic Carne Cruda and the Bodice Rippers. We've just heard from Claire Phillips. She plays the saxophone and flute with Hernandez Hideaway. We also heard Nao Nakazawa, who plays violin and mandolin. And we heard from Camilo Landau, who is part of Carne Cruda. So thank you three for joining us. We're really excited about the upcoming party. Thank you, Julieta. Thanks.
You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles Crónicas de la Raza on KPFA 94.1 FM Community Powered Radio. If you'd like to hear this program again or share it with others, just search for La Raza Chronicles on SoundCloud.com. Make sure to like us on Facebook to receive regular updates on news, arts, culture, music, and much more in El Mundo Latino. Hasta la próxima. Buenas noches.